Welcome to Farmside Today, our regular podcast about what's happening in pharmaceutical science, hosted by Professor Gina Martini, Chief Scientist of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. Visit www.orpharms.com forward slash podcasts for more Farmside Today and other podcasts. You can help us support the work of pharmacists by joining. Membership is just 60p a day. And now over to you, Gino. This podcast was conducted on the 2nd of November 2020 and so predates the recent announcements regarding vaccine efficacy and effectiveness. My name is Gino Martini. I'm the Chief Scientist for the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. Today I'm delighted to have uh, Dr Clive Dix, who's the Deputy Chair of the Vaccines Tax Force. Clive, good afternoon. How are you? Good afternoon, Gino. I'm very well, thank you. Can you just give our members just a little bit of background to who you are and how you end up working on the Vaccines Task Force? So my background is I'm originally a PhD pharmacologist and worked in industry for many, many years now, more than I'd like to remember, really. I worked in large pharmaceutical companies to start with, Supergeige and then GW and then GSK. Uh, I left left GW at the merger with GSK, and at that point I was the research director there at, at GW. And then I started what I call my second career, where I started working in smaller companies, first one being Powderject, which was a company where I started getting to understand the vaccine world, because we had the, the UK flu vaccine as part of that company. And since then, I've formed a number of companies and moved them to positions of high value and sold them on, one of which was also a vaccine-related company. So I've had a background in R&D, drug discovery, vaccine discovery and development for some 35, 40 years. And so I was asked by Kate Bingham if I would join her to bring some of the scientific rigour that's required. Can you give us a bit more of a background to the role and the purpose of the Vaccine Task Force? A bit more understanding about the role of the task force. The task force was set up with the primary aim was to get vaccines that would basically be able to vaccinate the appropriate UK population against COVID-19 as soon as is practicable. And the soon as is practical is a very important statement. The task force was set up with three major goals. So one was obviously to secure access to the promising vaccines for the UK population, as I said. Also to make sure that we kept an eye on the provision of vaccines for the international distribution as well and play a role in that. And thirdly, to then look at an industrial strategy to help build a permanent vaccine and biotherapeutic capability in the UK, which would then help deal with future pandemic responses, so build that legacy. So over the last six months, you've been very busy. Any chance you could just summarise some of your successes and perhaps some of the challenges that the task force has faced? The UK wouldn't be a place when you started looking at this back in um, April, May time as as a place where we've got a plethora of vaccine manufacturing or general capabilities in vaccine development. We tended to procure vaccines from elsewhere. And if you look at it, the only vaccine supplier in the UK was CSL or Sequirus that supplied the flu vaccine. We downplayed the manufacturing of vaccines in the UK. So the starting point was, can we now start working with all of those people out there developing vaccines, work out which ones are most likely to be available in, A, the shortest time, but also the ones that are the most promising at the same time. My role when I, I joined the Vaccine Task Force was to look at the 200 or so vaccines in development and filter them down with an expert team. So I developed a small due diligence team, people with high levels of skill in understanding all aspects of vaccine development from clinical immunology, clinical development, process development, manufacturing. And we set about looking at those 200 vaccines that were out there that everybody knows are in 
various stages of development and from that the way we looked at it was look we've got to have we've got to have more than one shot at goal because we know vaccine development isn't straightforward and not everything works so let's look at different approaches different platforms that make good vaccines and let's get a broad range of vaccines diverse in terms of platform and in approach so that if any one of them works we know we've got a good chance of having one that vaccinates the population we ended up getting down to the six that we've currently got, um, which is two in viral vectors. So if you think about the Oxford vaccine and the other one that we've announced, the, the Johnson Johnson or Janssen vaccine, they're in live viral vector vaccines. They're different platforms, different viral vectors, but basically the same concept and that one group of vaccines that we procured and would be available within the this pandemic period, which is the important thing. So there were and to get into phase three in this year or early next year. And then we looked at all the protein and protein adjuvanted vaccines. So in looking through those, we chose two of those, which we felt were the most likely to succeed. Uh, one is Novavax and the other one is GSK Sanofi. And both of them are protein subunit vaccines with adjuvants. And, and again, we chose ones with different adjuvants so we could get some diversity in, in the platform there. And then some of the very early promising vaccines in the sense of a new technology we chose one of those which is the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine which is an mRNA vaccine not a platform that's yet proven to produce a new vaccine yet but very promising in the speed of response and as we looked at the data that was available we could see that they may produce very good uh, immunology so we chose one of those and then finally we went for the old tried and trusted vaccine which is a similar to the flu vaccine which is a live inactivated viral vaccine and that was the one we did with Valneva. And in all cases, we looked to see if we could help either with the clinical studies and run clinical studies here. And as I'm sure all our listeners are aware, we've now got many clinical studies going on in the UK that's supported by the Vaccine Task Force. And also whether we can manufacture any of these in the UK. And in the case of Valneva, we supported building an extension to their Livingston site and therefore now can produce, well, hopefully be able to produce by the time it's all complete, somewhere in the region of 100 million doses of vaccine. So that sort of adds to our legacy position too, in that not only are we going to get a vaccine out, out of that, that investment, we'll also have a, a much larger footprint for vaccine manufacturing. And those were the, the activities that, it sounds quite simple now that we've done it, but there's a huge amount of work went into the diligence, huge amount of work went into whether we can contract in a way that we can get access as soon as they're available and also, you know, planning to look in detail at their clinical development and their database of safety that they would be building over that time so we, we would be sure that we got something that was safe and hopefully effective. You asked what were the challenges? Well, the challenges are mainly that we don't have a huge amount of that expertise in the UK. So it's all right making a vaccine in, you know, bulk drug substance, but the amount of filler finish in the world is very small compared to what we need. We're talking about billions of doses now. That's just not available. So we were, I would say, had a lot of foresight in that what we did was we reserved a lot of fill and finish capacity in the UK with the sites that were around and reserved them for any of the vaccines that our partners were going to produce. So that helped us very much in persuading people to bring their vaccines to the UK, both for clinical studies and to then obviously help fill and finish them and then get them to the UK population and hopefully in a sensible time. The challenge was really about having the capacity here in the UK, and I think we've built some of that now. We've put money into vMIC to extend that for fill and finish, 
and we've also got the Valneva manufacturing now, which has boosted our capacity. Huge amount of work and scope of task force. I obviously have to congratulate you and the team. Just to recollect that, I mean, we've basically secured four main classes of vaccines from about six different suppliers. That's, That's exactly right. Yeah. And that obviously gives us the vaccine task force some assurance that we can try and you know, clobber this virus once and for all. There's a different option we can choose, basically. Yeah, and I think it's worth pointing out that nobody expects any of these vaccines to be the perfect vaccine. The perfect vaccines take a long time to develop and, and getting a vaccine that will be sterilizing, in other words, does actually decrease the transmission or actually completely stop the transmission of, of the virus is, is probably a very difficult task. But what we believe are these vaccines are all going to severely cut the disease severity. But I, I always think of it as a little bit like flu in that we've never really solved the problem of flu. We still get it every year. We, we get different strains coming through and we're not fully immunized against them. But every year we, we reduce the disease burden and we reduce the death rate to a a very low level and that and that's where I think we'll end up with COVID-19 and that we'll cut it to being something we have to manage and live with and so part of our thinking around all of these vaccines is if some of them look safe enough and good enough they may become something as part of our armament for many years to come in that we may have to revaccinate people maybe annually or maybe biannually. Yeah Clive I mean that's the conclusion I came to with my team at the Royal Pharmaceutical Society sounds as though it's highly likely that repeat dosing uh, may need to happen. So in the first phase of vaccination, all of these, perhaps apart from the Janssen J&J one, will be two doses anyway, a prime and a boost, you know, some 28 days apart. But we have no idea about the longevity of these vaccines yet, of course, because they haven't been around long enough to know whether the immune response remains. But it's likely, given what we're seeing with uh, convalescent plasma and the level of antibodies in, in convalescent plasma that seems to decline, that immunity to the spike protein, which is what they're all against, the spike protein of the virus seems to wane with time and we don't know yet but we're predicting we may have to revaccinate certainly next year or the year after we vaccinate I should say rather than next year. Yeah and obviously we're hoping to support this initiative uh, with pharmacists and pharmacy technicians playing a vital role in, in administering those those vaccines along with other healthcare providers. This is why this podcast is very important. No, absolutely advantage. I think the way we're looking at it at the moment and the work that we're not actually the deployment group, the vaccine task force has provided all the data and there's a huge effort on looking at deployment of these vaccines and getting ready for them. Certainly the infrastructure that's available for the annual flu vaccine has been called upon to be part of this. A lot of their infrastructure is being used and as you know with that, that involves the pharmacy network. But I would say that the first likely vaccines that come along are going to be the Oxford vaccine and the Pfizer vaccine. They're the furthest advanced in clinical trials so we're hoping they'll be the, the first two that show efficacy and if they do I think the deployment will be slightly different for each because the Oxford one has a cold chain but the Pfizer one has an ultra low cold chain. So for the Oxford one we think it will be stored between 2 to 8 degrees Celsius normal refrigeration and the Pfizer about minus 20 degrees C so clearly that is specialist. Well the, um, Fi the Pfizer one actually has to be transported at minus 70 to 80 so it's okay. ultra low and therefore the capabilities being built as we speak in fact most of it's done now to be able to store it in um, hubs 
for them distribution. It can then it then has a shelf life or a half life um, once it's out of those minus 70s. That's long enough to take it to vaccine centres. So it'll be much more of a vaccination centres rather than through uh, pharmacies for that one. My understanding, Clive, on the Pfizer one, are, this, are they looking at work to see whether they can reduce the, the temperature to more manageable levels? Is that work ongoing as well? There's work ongoing with all of the mRNA vaccines and actually as we've looked at them, it's quite interesting, so I won't say which companies, but there are companies out there that are developing them and they've got things that are stable at two to eight for you know three or four months. So there is the promise with mRNA. I think mRNA is a fantastic promising platform. It's just very young. And I think there is the promise that we'll get to stable products with that, at least at four degrees. But that's something that one of the things that's dear to my heart. And, and I feel we as, a, as an industry, um, particularly in the vaccine industry, have failed to do over the successive years. And that is produce room temperature stable, easy to administer and easy to ship vaccines. And it, it really is dear to my heart that I think that's going to be one of the legacies we must leave behind we must start putting money aside and investing in promising technologies that can lead us to something that really can solve a pandemic. We've got to be able to deliver vaccines to all parts of the earth. And at the moment, some of these vaccines just patently won't get there. There just isn't the supply chain that you could put in place to do that. So I'm really keen that one of the big initiatives for the future now is to start investing in some of these slightly more difficult formulations and maybe difficult presentations. So I think oral, intradermal or intranasal vaccines could play a really big part in the future for the preparedness of the next pandemic. And, and to get there, we've got to put in place an infrastructure that can test those sorts of formulations out. We have seen some early promising data from some companies, but they're just they're not there yet and it needs some more investment. But, you know, that should be on a, in the front of our minds for vaccination for the future. It almost go full circle, Clive, with Powder Jack. Do you remember trying to use high pressure yeah. to fight Yeah, but actually, them? when you say full circle, Gino, let's just look at the two most effective vaccines the world's ever had. It's a smallpox vaccine yeah. and there's the polio vaccine, both of which are the, probably the only two that's close to eradicated disease. Now, the smallpox vaccine was actually a scratch on the arm, so it was sort of an intradermal vaccine, although we didn't think of it like that at the time. It wasn't into muscle. It wasn't subcutaneous. It was literally scratching the surface. And the polio vaccine was an oral vaccine. So the two vaccines that have been the most successful actually used crude versions of what we need to do for the future. And I'm convinced that some of the patch technologies and some of the oral technologies with, with enteric coating can get you to a position where you've got a vaccine that could be delivered in a dry form to the world. And that's what we've got to focus on now and not just say, well, we know how to do intramuscular Let's face it, a muscle doesn't have any immune system. It's an immune-privileged organ. So the only reason they work is because you adjuvant them and you cause an inflammatory response, and then you get immunology going on in muscle. That's not where immunology normally goes on. It goes on around all the mucosal membranes around the body because that's the place that protects you from foreign invaders. And we really need to get on top of that and start building uh, those sort of products for the future. Absolutely. And actually, in, in our museum collection, Clive, I'll send you the slide. We have one of the original influenza bottles where it was made from scraping some lungs from infected soldiers, would you believe? Royal Army College of Medicine. It shows you how things have evolved a little bit. But we sort of lost track of where the immune system is and how you have to access it, I think, because of simplicity of injection, basically. <laughs> <laughs>
I would agree. And our good friend, uh, Professor Mahendra Patel, who's now helping Oxford in the principal trial. Uh, there's been a lot of discussions about recruitment of vaccines trials. I mean, clearly we need diversity, don't we, in our trials, uh, particularly if you're not getting the, the vulnerable groups being inoculated or at least uh, tested. What's the Vaccine Task Force doing in this space? Well, of course, one of the successes of the task force has been setting up the registry, which is basically people pre-consenting to become part of trials, which means that the trials can then uh, move very speedily through recruitment. So that registry was set up and there was a lot of promotion of that to get people to sign up. And since then, there's been a huge push to try and persuade the, the BAME group and other high-risk group to actually sign up to this. Now, it's going quite well, but it's not quite where it needs to be. But many of the studies now have got the various cohorts of individuals in there. So we're, we're getting quite comfortable that we're seeing plenty of elderly take up and, and slightly more in the Bain community taking up as well. But it, it, that is much harder. For some reason, it's, it's not something that people do easily. Whether that's a cultural thing, I don't know, but certainly it's not been easy to do. We've evoked lots of groups of people to come and speak for us about how important the registry is, and, and they've helped enormously. I, I'm well aware with the work that Mahendra's been doing. We've been putting posters on, on pharmacies, encouraging people to participate in, in those clinical trials. Yeah, as, uh, as normal, though, the pharmacies play a hugely important role, not just in delivering stuff, but also in in educating and being able to speak to people and give them assurance of things. And I think that that role is going to be even greater in the next year or so that people will be asking these professionals who really know what they're talking about, you know, is this a good thing to do? Is it safe? And it's really important that, that the pharmacy community understands all what's behind these vaccines and is able to speak with authority to the public. The public want to hear things from, they want to hear from scientists and doctors and nurses and pharmacists. They want to hear from the people that really can talk to them at the level that they need to be spoken to. And we actually know history teaches us that if we don't get this right, we'll have a problem. We, we saw this with the MMR. So even before COVID-19 was a problem, one of the issues, one of, the, one of my objectives was to try and uh, I used to be deal with vaccine haters, but they, we, you know, they cause us a problem. I mean, there's two things. The anti-vaxxers. There are people, just normal people in the street who are hesitant, and the vaccine hesitancy group now is is larger than we'd like and I think that those people need to be assured and I can say that everything we've been doing for the last six months has been around can we get something that's safe and effective so it's always safe first and then the level of effectiveness is less important it's got to be effective but we're not looking to suddenly have a neutralizing vaccine that, that completely fixes the problem we're looking to things that will take away disease severity, but be safe enough to do that. So I think, I think it's really important to push the safety angle because safety is absolutely paramount here. As the chief scientist for the Royal Pharmaceutical Society, I want to volunteer my help in communicating that message. For me, people hear the words unlicensed and don't understand unlicensed doesn't mean tested. These things have been tested and actually as safe as can be. Risk versus benefit ratio always. And I think one thing that we're very proud of, particularly in the UK, is our MHRA. They're a totally independent body. They will not be swayed by anybody to vaccinate people unless they know it's safe. They will scrutinise every single application, whether it's fully licensed to, to market authorisation level or not, is, is sort of irrelevant. But all the testing that's done is exactly the same that's done when something takes six years to do. They still scrutinise it in the same way. The, the, 
the product is released with the same level of scrutiny. So I think everybody should be assured that the safety will be paramount. Clive, you mentioned before about the, the strategy, the policy of vaccinating those who are vulnerable. Is that the initial focus? And then will you then look at other segments of the population? Or is the focus just on the vulnerable population? Obviously, the availability of vaccine dictates how many people get vaccinated and over what time period, of course. But obviously, what you all, I'm sure all, all your listeners from a pharmacy background understand that not only do we have the MHRA, we also have the Joint Committee for Vaccine Immunisation, which is another independent body that basically informs the government of which groups of people should get the different vaccines. In normal daily life, basically, all vaccination goes through that route. And that is a, a very austere group of people that really understand vaccination and, and spend a lot of time coming up with their recommendations. And what they've done for the pandemic is recommended that as vaccines become available, we start by vaccinating the most vulnerable to start with, which happens to be, it's sort of age-related anyway, so you do an age-related vaccination from the eldest downward. And in the course of doing that in the first wave, also to vaccinate frontline social workers and healthcare workers together at the same time. So those those are the most important groups and down to the age of about 45 or 50. Now, whether we'll ever go all the way to vaccinating the whole population is still a question. A, on whether there's going to be enough vaccine available in the first instance, but also whether that's the right thing to do. The risk for very young people of getting anything other than a mild disease is quite small, and therefore we know these things are going to be safe. But would you, not knowing the long-term effects, take that whole group of people and say they must be vaccinated? I don't think so. I think that has to become carefully thought through. But at the moment, the plan is to have enough vaccine to vaccinate everyone if we want to go there, but we'll be looking at that very carefully. It goes back to your flu model, doesn't it? No, we vaccinate vulnerable people and people that are in need of a vaccine because of either their health conditions or because of their age. And I think if we can get to a point where we've done a sort of an extended flu campaign this year, or next year it'll be now, I guess, mm. with a COVID-19 vaccine, then we've done a good job because we will have removed the majority of the risk in the population and therefore people can breathe a sigh of relief and start getting back to normal. But Clive, you've mentioned a number of times during the interview about the legacy ambitions of the, of the Vaccines Task Force. Yeah, so we've done an enormous amount of work on vaccine development and, and manufacturing during the life of the task force to date. And what we want to leave is something that makes this country the place that people want to come and do vaccine development. So we want to sort of consolidate what we've done around, first of all, vaccine testing, if you like, clinical studies. So we have the registry. We'd like to keep that as a permanent thing. We'd like to make sure that the clinical networks that NIHR have run with some fantastic principal investigators become something of a permanent fixture that are able to be called upon to do clinical studies. And we have this thing called the COVID immunology consortium that's been looking at really sophisticated assays that can be used to really understand what a vaccine is doing in the clinic. Uh, something that we don't really do that well at the moment. And hopefully we'll build on that so that people can come here with their vaccines and do early stage studies where we get a really rich amount of information out and that gets into the the understanding of vaccines for the future. And if we if we can make that a real selling point of the UK, that will be fantastic. And then on top of that, because we've built some strong manufacturing capability now both in, in Valneva and there'll be others to come and with, with the VMIC manufacturing capability 
We want to enhance that with a vaccine formulation capability, so start looking at a really high-quality centre of excellence for vaccine formulation, whether it be intranasal, intradermal or oral, and start helping companies with novel vaccines to put them through that system and, and work out whether we can get vaccines for the future that will really be pandemic-prepared. So all those things we hope to be able to put into some form of a vaccine initiative for the future that, that has its own standing and therefore we can attract companies to the UK and, and also enhance the startup companies in the UK to use those facilities. Clive, on behalf of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society, I'd like to thank you, uh, Kate Bingham, all the members of the Bastion Task Force for a great job that you're doing. I feel, I, don't know, I think our members will feel very reassured that you're doing a great job. Thank you so much on behalf of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. Thank you, Gino, and I should be thanking that there's a big team in the Vaccine Task Force that work literally tirelessly every day and have done since I joined. It's an amazing effort and a huge amount of energy going behind it because we all believe it's the right thing to do. Clive, what you, you described, absolutely, Clive, what you've described, what you guys have achieved in the nine months is just simply incredible. Thank uh, you. Be safe. Cheers, Gino. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us at Farmside today. We regularly add new chats with interesting and important figures at www.orfarms.com forward slash podcast. So check back again soon to keep up with the latest in pharmacy and pharmaceutical science. And remember, RPS membership costs just 60p a day. Find out more at www.orfarms.com forward slash RPS membership.